Well, good afternoon, everybody. It's uh, a pleasure to see so many of you here. And uh, again, I would like to say thank you to the conveners of this conference and the assembly here for inviting me to share with them at this time. It was an added delight and bonus to discover that I was sharing with Brother Larry Price. And uh, I look forward, in the will of God, to being with you again at this time next year. Now, back in the UK, we usually call this afternoon session, immediately after lunch, uh, the graveyard session, um, on the basis that the scripture that says, he is not dead but sleepeth, um, is the basis of that situation. Now, let me say immediately that there's nothing wrong with sleeping in the meeting. I've done it myself. And, uh, uh, but the danger of falling asleep um, is not the sleeping bit, but when you waken up again. Um, and, and there is a recognized way of waking up from sleep in a meeting. Uh, what you do is that you, you're sitting in your seat, you see, and your eyes are closed because you've been sleeping, but then you're waking up. Now, you must not wake up with a start because everybody will see that and recognize what's been happening, but you, with, with your eyes still closed, you just nod your head a bit like that, and, <laughs> and folks think that you're agreeing with the speaker. And, uh, you know, and then as you begin to open your eyes a bit, just, you know, murmur a little amen, and um, that'll be done quite well. Um, but you should also be aware that from the vantage point of the pulpit here, the preacher can see nearly everything. It's amazing. <laughs> It's amazing the things that you can see from up here. But I have been doing some work on how to overcome this idea of folks falling asleep in the meeting and the embarrassing situation of waking up. And I have, um, for my iPhone, been developing a little application um, which I'm going to call the sleeping in the meeting application. And, uh, it's on trial at the minute, and the design of the thing is that um, it allocates, the app allocates to everybody in the meeting um, a number. And uh, it's plugged wired into the audio system of the, of the meeting room. It works in business meetings as well. And um, <laughs> what happens is that if I see, uh, it, it sort of measures makes an assessment of, of the breathing of the individuals, you see. And uh, if I think I see somebody sleeping, I just press um, my telephone, and it comes up with a number. And it also activates in this place where that person is sitting um, something that makes them stand up. <laughs> and, you know, that, that would be hugely embarrassing. Now, you might not believe that story, but I'm going to test it to see if it works. <laughs> and if I press this, it tells me number 200. <laughs> Thank you very much. It can work not only with younger people, but it can work with older people as well. And so we'll press it again. 76. And if you're with a group of people, you might think, well, I'm safe in a group. Well, you're not safe. Let's see. Looking for a group. 
numbers 101, 102, 103. <laughs> Thank you very much. So I think if you fall asleep in this meeting, you're very brave <laughs> because I will keep this in front of me and press the, <laughs> press the button and you'll stand up whether you like it or not. And uh, we'll all have a laugh at your expense. So, remember that in a couple of years' time, you preachers get the Sleeping in the Meeting app for <laughs> iOS and Android, and that'll be a good uh, extra um, skill to your existing skill set. James chapter 1, please. Verse number 16, James 1, 16. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like unto a man, beholding his natural face in a glass, for he beholdeth himself and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion, and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. And I'm sure God will add a blessing to the reading of his word. Now, in the earlier two addresses on James, we looked at the first half of the chapter. I suggested that perhaps the chapter could be divided into three. First of all, the first verses, verses number one, down to number 12, uh, could be entitled Trials. Verses 13 to 16 could be entitled Temptations. And verses 17, if you like, or 16 or 17, to the end of the chapter, really gives us the thought of the response to such trials and tribulations. I do want to go over what I said uh, in the previous meetings, but for the sake of time, just to make a start at verse number 16 and head in the general direction of the end of the chapter. Do not err, my beloved brethren, says verse number 16. Uh, it means make no mistake about this. And I think I did mention that some would say that that verse refers to the first two parts of the chapter about which he has been speaking concerning trials and tribulation, trials and um, trials and temptations. Or it might apply to the following part of the chapter, particularly the following verse, verse 17, 
is to make no mistake about this, about what is going to follow now. There was the thought at the end of um, the first part of the chapter, verse number 14, um, I'm sorry, verse number 13, that no man say, when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. It might be possible for you and for me to think, if not to say, that God could have kept me out, kept me free from that temptation. He could have stopped me going to that place. He could have stood in the way not to let these circumstances surround me so that I eventually, if you like, gave in to temptation and I sinned. God could have helped me more. Now, says James, make no mistake about that. God would never do that. He is not the kind of God who tries to pull you down. He is the kind of God who endeavors to lift you up. Make no mistake about that. You cannot, you cannot blame God when you sin or when you yield to temptation. There are only two possibilities. Number one, that it's Satan that is tempting you. Or number two, that it's your own wicked heart that is leading you astray. And verse 17 describes why God would not be involved in anything like that. He says that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Our God deals only in things that are good and in things that are perfect. And if you recognize in the world anything that you could describe as good, you know where it came from. It didn't come from Satan. It didn't come from a wicked heart. The only place that anything good can come from is from God himself. And he is a God who, not who puts his people into temptation, but he is a God who supports his people by giving them gifts of different kinds. And now he says, every good gift and every perfect gift. And you might wonder, what is the difference between a good gift and a perfect gift. One of my grandchildren wanted very badly uh, one of these remote controlled cars, you know, one of the small ones that run along the floor. And uh, my wife and I, we bought him one for Christmas. And uh, on Christmas day, of course, when he was at our house, uh, out it came, he unwrapped it, and wow, there it was, what he'd always wanted. And uh, this was a good gift, you see, this was good. Uh, some thought had gone into it. And, uh, of course, he tore open the box, threw it all aside, got the car out, got the rest of it, the uh, control, uh, remote control thing, set up as well. And there it was, and we all stood looking at it, and he pressed the button, and nothing happened. And so we had an inspection of it, took it off the carpet, moved it onto something a bit more, a bit harder, a wooden floor, and uh, he pressed the remote again. Nothing happened. Now, this was a good gift. It cost good money. It was exactly what he wanted. He wanted it for Christmas, and he got it for Christmas. It was a good gift. And so we then took it into the kitchen to tiles and pressed it again. Nothing happened. And then <clears throat> somebody went and retrieved the box to see if they could get any information from the box. And on the outside of the box, in quite small type, were those dreaded words. Batteries not included. <laughs> now, you see, it was a good gift, but it was not a perfect gift. 
because with a perfect gift, the batteries would have been included and everything would have been fine. I say, I hope not irreverently, that every gift that our God gives comes with the batteries included. It is a good gift and it is a perfect gift in that it is eminently suitable for the person to whom it is given. On the other hand, you could interpret that phrase, every good gift and every perfect gift, you can change it a little bit to this, that every good gift and every perfect act of giving. Well, of course, there is a difference there too, isn't there? Every good gift and every perfect act of giving. When I was in business, we used to have customers come and visit us from publishers who were our customers. And uh, it may be that they would come in to see me in my office and uh, I would say to them, um, you know, what's your hobby? What are you interested in? And one might say, well, I play golf. And I would scan my bookshelves in the office, you see, and I would find a book that we had printed about golf. And I'd take it down and I'd give it to him and the man would be or the woman would be delighted and pleased with that. Good gift. We also owned a company in Belgium. Now, I don't know if there are any Belgians here today, but uh, Belgians really know how to do things. What they did, I discovered when I was over there, about a week before the customer was to visit, a secretary rang his secretary and said, what is Mr. So-and-so interested in? And maybe his secretary said, well, he loves golf. So they would have scanned their bookshelves and they would have seen a book on golf and they would have taken that down and they would have wrapped it up in beautiful gift paper, tying one of these lovely knots on top, writing his name on it and everything like that. And before the customer left, they gave him that gift. You see, it was the same book, but we just took it off the shelf and said, there you are, you'll enjoy that. But they gave it beautifully. They gave it beautifully, wrapped in everything else. Every good gift and every perfect act of giving. You see, if I have my watch here and I look at it and I say, now that's a nice watch, who would like it as a gift? And you put your hand up and I throw it to you and say, catch. Well, you know, it's a good gift, but it wasn't given very nicely, was it? But let me say this to you. It is God's speciality to give good gifts and he gives them in a perfect way, in the perfect time, in the perfect place, to the right individual. And here now James is saying, look, don't even think about blaming God for things that go wrong in your life because he's not responsible. You think you have a God who delights in giving good gifts in beautiful ways. And those of you who are young can look forward to receiving from God gifts given beautifully and appropriately and in a timely fashion, just as many of us older folks can look back and remember the good and the perfect gifts we received from the hand of God. And he says these, this, these gifts, good and perfect gifts, come down. The idea is they keep on coming down. You can't stop them. They keep on coming down. And more than that, he says, they come down from a rather strange phrase, the father of lights. Now, you might wonder what that phrase means, the father of lights. We know he's the father of our Lord Jesus Christ and, uh, and the father of mercies, but the father of lights is maybe a strange phrase. You may remember that the first gift that God gave was, guess what, the gift of light. He said, let there be light, and 
lo and behold, there was light. So in that sense, it does fit in with this verse nicely that the good gifts given in a perfect way keep on coming down in the Christian life emanating from the Father of lights, himself the perfect giver, and himself, if you like, one who from the very beginning, from the very beginning of the world, is able to and is associated with the giving of gifts that he determines that we need and would be blessed by. And then it adds that little phrase, with whom is no variableness. In other words, there is no night and day with him, neither shadow of turning, and it is not the case, it is the case that with him there is no shadow cast by turning, as there is when the sun was shining, is shining, there are shadows cast here and there. So your God, our God, is a perfect God, a loving God, a careful God, a generous God, who just keeps on giving appropriate gifts to his people in a perfect and beautiful way without any change in his attitude to them at all. Going on from that, verse 18 indicates something else. Verse 18 says, of his own will begat he us with the word of truth. Now, what does that mean? Well, of his own will is quite straightforward. In other words, he did it because he decided to do it. Well, you say decided to do what? Well, of his own will begat he us. That is really saying, of his own will, he gave birth to us, that is, to the believers. The believers are his children. The believers are his sons and daughters. And he chose them in eternity past. He chose them of his own will. Of course, Ephesians chapter 2 speaks beautifully of the mystery of his will. The fact that God should choose some and not choose others to salvation, a truth known as election. But there's something else Ephesians 2 says about his will, and it puts it this way. It speaks not only of the mystery of his will, but of the good pleasure of his will. So now, why do you think, why do I think that God chose me? Why do you think that God chose you? Well, there is something mysterious about it. But I know this. He chose me because it gave him great pleasure to do so. I think that's a wonderful thing. He chose you for himself, and it gave him great pleasure in doing just that. There used to be a radio program at home, classical music, and uh, it was introduced in the radio under the title of It Gives Me Great Pleasure. And so this music was introduced to the audience by the um, uh, man in charge of the program, and the title was, It Gives Me Great Pleasure. And I want to say this to you. When God chose you, he chose you because it gave him great pleasure to do so. Maybe not many other people would have chosen you. Uh, was it, uh, uh, who was it that said, was it Moody or somebody like that? I can't remember now. Saying that I'm glad God chose me before I was born. Because if he'd waited until after I was born, he probably wouldn't have bothered. But um, so we were chosen, and we sing that hymn, don't we? Chosen not for good in me, 
wakened up from wrath to flee. And so, of his own will, by his own decision, by his own power, what did God do? He begat us. He gave birth to us. Oh, you remember the conversation that the Lord Jesus Christ had with one Nicodemus. The Lord said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus, puzzled by that, said, how can a man be born again? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? The obvious answer is no, he can't. So what does the phrase born again mean? It means to be born from above. You see, we are all here today in the flesh. And in this sense, we have all been born from beneath, that is, from the earth. But when you become a Christian, you are born from above. It's a heavenly birth. It is a gift of God from heaven is eternal life. And so of God's own will, by his own decision, and solely for his own pleasure, without consultation with anybody else, he gave birth to us. We were born from above. And in that beautiful way, we become a kind of first fruits of his creatures. James, of course, was writing to these early believers and was saying to them, look, you have been born from above. You're just the beginning. It's very early days. You are the first fruits. And throughout years to come, there would be thousands, millions, who would be born again, born from above, in the same way as you have been. So you can see that God, this God, is absolutely on your side. No way will he lead you into temptation. Not, he doesn't even think about that. And so now James goes on to say, having showed to us the wonderful and awesome and amazing God that we have, every good gift and every perfect act of given, giving is from above. And they keep on coming down from the giver of the first gift, the father of lights, who never changes like the world does change. In fact, he chose you before you chose him. He chose you because it gave him great pleasure to do so. And now he is ensuring that you are a kind of first fruits of his creatures. There will be others chosen in the same way, others to follow just like you have been chosen as well. Come to verse 19, he changes tack just a little bit, and he says, wherefore, my beloved brethren, I mentioned to you that the phrases my brethren and my beloved brethren occur 13 or 14 times in this epistle. It's nice to go through and just underline them for a future reference. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, he says, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. So now what's he talking about here? He has seemed to have veered off a little bit at a tangent. He says, I want every one of you as children of God to take this attitude to some of the things that you hear. There might be things that you hear in the ministry of the word in a public way, as you have over the days of this conference. There might be things that you hear from the word of God itself as you read it. There might be things that you hear in commentaries or on the radio in a spiritual program or something of that nature. 
What he says is, wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear. Now, <clears throat> that, of course, should mark all of you who attend a conference such as this. You come along not just for the fellowship, but you come along to hear. In fact, you come along anxious to hear, wanting to hear. And so that's a good thing. First of all, to hear. So I wonder how many of you, before you come out today or on Friday evening, before this conference said to yourself, I think I could maybe hear God speaking at this meeting, and I'm anxious to hear what he has to say to me. Well, that's a good thing to do. Secondly, he says, slow to speak. In other words, he gets into later, of course, talking about the tongue in future chapters. So he says, now, just be slow to speak. Be slow to react to anything that you hear. And thirdly, he says, and slow to wrath. In other words, don't let anything that you hear upset you. On this basis, that is from God, it may not have been put very well. It may not have been described very sympathetically, but it is God's word to you, and therefore, you should not be upset by anything that you hear from God's word. Because, he says, by way of explanation, that the wrath of man, that is the reaction of men to the word of God, doesn't lie well with the righteousness of God. I want to draw your attention just quickly to verse number 21. Wherefore, lay apart or lay aside all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. Now, I like that old English phrase there in the the superfluity of naughtiness. It's, uh, I mean, the mind boggles, doesn't it, to what that might be? But um, I think it, uh, it, it's speaking about the, the overflowing of wickedness. That's the idea. The overflowing of wickedness. Wherefore now, if you're going to listen to the word of God in any way that I've already suggested, you have to lay aside all filthiness. You see, if you're living a sinful life, the word of God is not going to be effective in your sinful life. You've got to lay that to one side. And this superfluity of naughtiness, this sin in your life that can easily overwhelm you, you've got to lay it to one side and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. And so instead of my being upset or angry, by anything the preacher says, I should come along to the meeting prepared to receive it in meekness as the word of God. It says here, of course, that it is the engrafted word, which is um, uh, a bit, uh, um, uh, I suppose, I'm struggling for a word. I think it's jet lag catching up with me now. But um, it's something that's added on from the... If you graft something, you add it on to the outside. Like if you're going to graft a rose or something, you put it on the outside of the existing rose. So that's unfortunate, but um, uh, because it's not the engrafted word that he's here talking about. The better interpretation and a better word for this is to receive with meekness the implanted word. Now, it is the work of the Holy Spirit to take what I say today, and any other preacher says today or any other day, to take that word, 
It might just be a word. It might be a phrase. It might be a verse. And the Holy Spirit will take that word and he will implant it. He will implant it right into your heart. In my garden at home, there's a, an old wall. And uh, out of that wall, at this time of the year, there springs some beautiful little flowers. Amazing, growing out of a wall. Well, how did it get there? How did that happen? Sometimes when I try to grow them on the soil, they don't grow at all. But here now, they're growing out of a wall. Well, what happened was, either the wind or a little bird or something of that nature had this little seed or the wind caught the seed and it lodged right into the wall. It was implanted. You see, if it had just been engrafted, the wind would have blown it away again. But it's implanted. And in due season, that little seed comes alive and flourishes. And I've got a beautiful little flower growing out of my wall. The implanted seed. Now, the word of God is an implanted seed. Now, it could be implanted in your heart without you even knowing it. Without you even knowing it. And it might be that you would attend this meeting and listen to this message this afternoon and say, well, there was nothing there for me. Well, maybe, maybe there wasn't anything there for you. But because there was nothing there for you, that's likely to be your fault rather than anybody else's. But if there was nothing there for you, that does not mean that there was nothing there for anybody else. Furthermore, if you took a census after the meeting and 100% said there was nothing there for me, that mightn't be right either because the word of God is implanted. Part of the gift of ministry, there are various facets to the gift of ministry. One facet is, or one, uh, if you like, statement made about ministry, the ministry of the word and those who do minister it, is that the result should be that all should learn and that all should be profited. That's a big call, that is, isn't it? That all should learn and that all should be comforted. Words of Paul. And another one is that the word of God in ministry seeks to build into the believer's life, scripture, and knowledge, which will be effective not today, but effective later. It's known as a building in ministry, so that when the evil day comes, those believers who have listened to this ministry will be able to stand, and having done all, to stand. And so the ministry of the word of God, the preaching of the word of God, is that which, if you like, is implanted into the soul or heart of the hearer. And that is a work of the Holy Spirit of God. And there's a lovely phrase there at the end of verse number 21, which says, which is able to save your souls. Well, you might say, well, I thought my soul was saved already. Well, so it is. But very often in the New Testament, when the word soul or soul is, soul or souls is used, um, you can translate that life. So here our verse might be saying, receive with meekness, the engrafted or implanted word which is able to save your life. Now, I have a great admiration for those men who go about preaching the gospel. 
because they are involved in a work with God which results in the saving of souls. We fellows who go about doing Bible teaching, well, what do we achieve? Our ministry is not to save souls, but the ministry of the Bible teacher is to save lives, to save lives. Now, you might hear something this afternoon or earlier today or earlier at the conference that will save your life. And by your life, I mean your testimony. For example, maybe you're away from home. You're in a strange part of the country. Nobody knows you. And you feel tempted. Where did that come from? Either Satan or your own heart. You feel tempted to go somewhere or to do something or to be involved in something. And you decide to do it. You see what we're talking about in chapter 1? And it may well be that just as you're about to step over the threshold, something that you heard in this meeting will pop into your mind. And you'll not do it. You'll turn on your heel and walk away. And something that I said here today in May 2015 might save your life if the Lord hasn't come in May 2020. That's part of the excitement of ministering the word of God and Bible teaching. We are in the business of saving lives. And uh, your life might well be saved. And you might say to yourself, well, I didn't think much of the meeting at the time, but goodness me, it saved my life, saved my testimony. Of course, if the word's not implanted, you might walk over the threshold and do it and regret it for the rest of your life. Well, our verse goes on to say, verse number 22, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. Be doers of the word. Just to hear the word is good. It's maybe even thrilling. It's exciting to hear the word. But the big thing is to do the word, to do the word. You say, well, what difference does that make? Well, it makes, it makes all the difference. It makes all the difference. You say, well, there's some parts of the scripture that I can't understand, so how can I do it? Well, supposing your truck breaks down, right? And it won't start for you. And uh, if you're like me, I know nothing much about automobiles and so on, except a limited ability to drive them. But if mine breaks down, I think, well, what am I going to do? And uh, I think, well, I might just call the RAC or something, but just to avoid doing that, I'll get out the handbook, you see, and I'll take it into the kitchen and I'll put on a cup of coffee and I'll sit at the kitchen and, uh, or in the sitting room and put my feet up and have a look at this manual, you see. And this manual tells me, perhaps, that what I've got to do is I've got to find the release that releases the bonnet I don't know what you call the front of your car, but it's the part where the engine is. Um, we don't have trunks and things like that. We have boots. But um, uh, you've got to pull this handle. Now, I've never seen this handle before. But anyway, you've got to pull this. And uh, that will lift up the um, thing at the front and expose the engine. It then tells me to look into it uh, in the engine, uh, locate a rectangular black box at the back left-hand side, unscrew it. And when I've unscrewed it, 
then I've got to see if there's anything sort of, you know, loose from there. And if there is, I should put it back. And I'm looking at this stuff and I think, I don't understand. I mean, what's it talking about? And so I just put the manual down and I call the AA. On the other hand, if instead of bringing the manual into the table, I take the manual out to the car. And it tells me to locate the um, bonnet release thing, which I find on the underside of the uh, dashboard. And I go and have a look, and I see it, and I pull it. And it opens. Amazing. I did that. Then it says, tells me to have a look in the engine. And I look, and I see the black box. I see the rectangular black box. Tells me to unscrew it, so I unscrew it. It tells me to look for something that might be loose, and I look, and lo and behold, I see it. It tells me to put it back in again and tighten it up. I put it back in and tighten it up. Close the bonnet, job done. It was easy. In the kitchen, it wasn't easy at all. I didn't even understand it. But I took the manual out of the car and did it. And as I did it, it worked. And I enjoyed it too. And didn't enjoy reading it. I enjoyed doing it. And your enjoyment of the scripture depends upon not only your reading it, but also doing it. If any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, not a doer, you deceive people. And the only people you deceive is yourself. It's bad enough to deceive other people, but to deceive yourself is uh, very strange. Then look at verse number 23. This is also about hearing and doing. If any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. Now, the glass that he speaks of, of course, is a mirror. Now, mirrors in those days when this was written were not the um, sort of beautiful crystal clear mirrors of today, uh, which are quite, um, you know, uh, they, they are relentless in pointing out your shortcomings. And, um, but he says their, their mirror was sort of brass that was burnished and polished, and you had to really peer into it to see any reflection. So he says here, if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man. Now, I would, I don't know if anybody has ever done a survey, but I would imagine that women spend a lot more time looking in mirrors than men do. I mean, would you think that would be a reasonable assessment? But here it says, if any man, if any man looks in a mirror. Now, women and men look in mirrors in different ways and for different purposes. In fact, some women even sit down to look in the mirror. <laughs> we fellows would never think of that. We look, we look in the mirror as we're walking past it, you know, and uh, so on, just like that. If any man, if any man be a hearer and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass, in a mirror. What happens? For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. Now, why do ladies look in the mirror? Well, it might be to see how beautiful they are, to see whether any makeup they've applied is right, to see if their hair is looking great, and uh, that their dress and uh, everything about them is just right. And if it seems not to be just right, they'll change it. 
Sometimes my wife looks in the mirror and then she goes and has a complete change of clothes. <laughs> you see, but ladies look in the mirror to find anything that might possibly be described as defective or could be improved on, and they do it. Now, we fellows are not like that. Uh, I'm going out to a meeting from home, you see, and uh, I walk past the mirror and I have a look. And really, I don't see anything at all. But I may notice, for example, that my tie is a bit to one side. And I think, well, I could stop now and I could fix that. But on the other hand, I have an hour's drive to do. I'll be stopping in one place and, uh, you know, other things might happen that will make my tie squint again. So when I get there, I'll do it. And then after the meeting, somebody says to me, nice tie, Roy, but a squint. You see, I forgot all about it. I forgot all about it. I looked in the mirror. What did I? I looked in the mirror. I did see it. I didn't fix it right away. Consequently, it let me down later. Sometimes when I am going out to a meeting, I need to pass an inspection before I leave. And I go to say cheerio to my wife. And uh, I say, well, I'm away now. And she'll look at me and she'll say, let me see you. She said, look at your tie. Have you looked in the mirror, she'll say. And I'll say, well, yes, I have. Of course I have. Now, any time your husband says, of course, it's a lie, right? <laughs> so I say, yes, of course I have. And she who knows that's a lie says, you couldn't have done. Look at it. Look at your collar. Look at this, that, or the other thing, you see. And then I have to go away and fix it up and be inspected once more. So <laughs> men and women looking in mirrors are different. Now, this is being applied, if you like, to the word of God. Why do I read my Bible? Well, I want to hear the voice of God, don't I? Yes. But the Bible being a mirror will show me different things. For example, one part of the mirror will show me any defects in my Christian life. It'll show them up. Now, when did you last see a defect in your Christian life? As you're reading the Bible, you think, that's not me, I don't do that. Once you saw that defect, did you set about to improve it? Or have you never thought of looking in the mirror, the mirror of the word of God, for defects in your Christian life? You should do so. It exposes them. It sets them up. It encourages you to change. Another part of the mirror, of course, I look in it, the word of God, and I see the Lord Jesus. And I see his perfections. And I compare them to mine. And the mirror encourages me to be like him. And so I try to be like him. You know, this is a strange mirror too. You can not only look at it, you can look in it, and you can look through it. And you can study the mirrors of the New Testament at some time, and you'll see what I'm driving at. And so it is, therefore, that each and every one of us should treat our Bibles as a mirror, look into it on a regular basis, fix anything in my life that it shows me to be wrong and defective or could be improved, 
and not to walk away saying, it's not for me. I'll fix it later. Because here our verse says, for he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. Now, I'm just going to check on this sleeping in the meeting app. Now, it tells me there's nobody asleep at the minute, so that's good. So, you don't have much longer to hang in there, so just um, see it through. Now, he goes on to say, uh, in verse number 25, but whoso looketh into... You see, previously we were looking at the mirror, those earlier verses. Now we're looking into, whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty. Now that phrase, the perfect law of liberty, I take it to be, uh, well, of course, it's the law that sets you free. Now that's a most unusual law, isn't it? Laws usually bind you. And uh, I mentioned to somebody earlier today that um, I'm going to Singapore shortly for meetings, and I've been there a few times, and one brother uh, driving me around the town, around, around the city of Singapore, he said, this is a fine city, he said. We have so many laws. He said, they fine you for that, and they fine you for this, and they fine you for the other thing, and so you end up spending your life in Singapore paying fines because of the laws. But here is a law that's a law that sets you free. Even in the Old Testament, the law bound you. In the New Testament, now the believer finds that the law of God sets them free. And that's a beautiful thing about God's salvation. It gives freedom to slaves. And therefore, he says now, but whoso looketh into. Remember Mary at the tomb and she looking in. Studying, thinking about, looking at not just a passing glance, but whosoever looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth. Now, you will might notice in your Bible in that verse that the word therein is italicized. And just for young people who may not know, um, that the, anything that you see in your Bible in italics is not in the original Greek. It's been supplied by the translators to help us understand. Although sometimes I think it would be better to leave it out because it's better left out here. The way this verse is put in the King James Version, whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, indicates that you should continue looking in the perfect law of liberty all the time. Well, you should, but that's not the idea of the verse. Whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continues... What does the continuing involve? The continuing involves doing it. So whosoever looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continues, i.e. does what the Bible says, he or she, being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deeds. And so here James is really encouraging the folks to read their Bible, pray every day, and to grow, grow, grow. And so I ask you that the things that you have heard at this conference over this weekend, that you really look into them, and that you really read the Bible for yourself, expecting, anticipating, not being upset by the fact 
that it will show you things that need fixing in your life, that it will show you pictures that will inspire you, pictures of the Lord Jesus, pictures of men of God of days gone by, and that it will speak to your heart in a very direct way. And the big thing is, not only to hear it, but to do it. And then he just finishes, and I want to finish now too, in the last couple of verses, just to mention them briefly. It says, if any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Now, here again, I'm deceiving myself and deceiveth his own heart. Well, what's, what's he mean? Well, he's going to talk about the tongue later, but here's just a little foretaste of it. It may be that I profess to be religious, that I profess to be a Christian, that I profess to be born from above, but to hear me speaking and to see me living, you wouldn't think it. Back at home, somebody used to say, I think it was our brother Jack Hunter used to say on a regular basis, if it became a crime in this country to be a Christian, would the authorities have enough evidence to arrest you? I wonder, would they? If any man claims to be religious, claims to be a, a Christian, and cannot control his tongue, that man's religion is empty. He's deceiving himself, and he is good to nobody. So you and I need to be careful that our tongues do not let us down by what we say, by how we say it, by how often we say it, perhaps even. And so it is, if you like, incumbent upon you and me as Christians to guard our tongue because it will let us down. James goes on to say it is an unruly thing. It cannot be tamed. Behold, how great a matter a little fire can kindle. Something that I can say could hurt somebody very badly, even destroy them as a believer. Something that I could say could put somebody off being a Christian for life. So if you profess to be a child of God, born from above, you and I, we need to watch our tongues. Of course, we sometimes say about people, well, you know, uh, she's very nice to talk to. But it's when you have to listen to her, that's different. <laughs> but, um, so the tongue can let you down very badly. And then he goes on on a positive note. It's nice to end on a positive note. Pure religion, he said, real Christianity, pure religion can be summed up like this. Pure religion and undefiled before God, even the Father, is this. What? To visit the fatherless and widows and their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. To visit the fatherless and the widows and their affliction. Now, to visit the orphans, the fatherless, even those who have lost a father but still live at home with a mother. We need to keep those children very close to our hearts. 
I was grateful for that. I met, told some of you last night when we were talking that my father died when I was 10, and my mother died when I was 16, in circumstances that were unusual. I was baptized on a Sunday, which happened to be Christmas Day. So that was a great way to spend a Christmas Day, wasn't it, being baptized? And that meant I was received into fellowship on New Year's Day. What a way to start a new year. My mother died the next day. And I was left at 16 an orphan. But a brother came to see me, and he gave me a verse. I didn't think much of it at the time, but it was implanted. It was implanted. It was a help later. And it said this. This verse that he left with me said this. When my father and mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. And of course, I've found that to be true in every aspect of my life, spiritually, um, commercially, financially, every way. And it has been such a blessing that I've received from the Lord. But here now, when has anybody in this assembly, maybe there are no orphans in this assembly, maybe there are no fatherless children in this assembly, but if there are, or in other assemblies nearby, it's one thing to feel sorry for them. It's another thing to visit them, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. If there are no fatherless, I'm sure there are widows, and they would appreciate a visit, a short visit. They would appreciate a visit, maybe from you, and you would also find that you appreciate it their response to your visit. This is pure, this is real Christianity. Now you might say to me, well, of course, this assembly here, <clears throat> there's nobody visits the fatherless and the widows in it. Or there's nobody that shows hospitality. Or there's nobody that, no, hang on a minute. Hang on. Why do you think the Lord put you here? Huh? If there's nobody visiting the widows, stop complaining, you do it. Maybe that's why the Lord put you here. And you know, the widows, they like to be visited by young people as well. And so here is pure religion and undefiled before God and the fathers is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows. Interesting there, you see that it's God the Father, God the Father. To visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. And then this real truth about separation from the world and to keep himself unspotted from the world. I like James. It's a bit like the, William MacDonald has a little book, I'm sure you've read it, <coughs> called uh, Joseph, makes me think of Jesus. And I think it's in his introduction to that, he says, Joseph was a lovely fellow. You would have liked him. And I hope after our talks over this weekend that I can say to you, James was a lovely fellow. You would have liked him. May God bless his word. Our Father, we come to thee in the name of the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the opportunity of being here, sharing with thy people, uh, teaching thy word, encouraging one another. And we pray, Lord, that there may be, as a result of this conference, many seeds planted in many hearts, that in a coming day and coming years will save many lives. This would be the best outcome we could ask for, and we specifically ask thee for it now. And give thee our thanks in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.